The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Dynamic Healing with two experts in chronic pain, David Hanscom and Les Aria. This podcast will show you how to unlock your body's ability to heal. Just breathe and learn how to rewire your brain and break free from chronic pain. Welcome to Dynamic Healing Podcast. I'm Les Aria. And I'm David Hanscom. And I'd like to introduce our guest this morning, Dr. Michael Stein. And we're excited about having him. We've talked to him a little bit. I've read his book called Accidental Kindness, which is the topic of today's conversation. And he is an internist. He's also an award-winning author of six novels and four books of nonfiction. Most recently, the book is called Broken. Patients talk about money with their doctor. He is a professor of health policy at the Boston University School of Public Health and executive editor of publichealthpost.org. So, Michael, welcome to the program. I am excited to meet you. Uh, We've talked a little bit, and your insights into medicine right now are very, very timely. So yeah, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you guys. Great. So, you know, I'm excited to talk to you because of the book you've written, the books you've written, but specifically the the book that most recently, Accidental Kindness. Um, when I hear that word in physicians and healthcare, I kind of pause. I'm not sure I have palpitations, Doc, but um, it, it really brings palpitations because of some of the horrid stories I've heard. Um, it's so intriguing that um, we public, the public, we come to doctors looking, seeking for answers. And then we get a different feeling sometimes um, when we leave. And because there's a very high pace um, interaction that occurs that my patients are often thrown off, uh, thrown as if they've been uh, received a curveball. But let me ask you this first question as we ask all our guests. Um, would love to hear, like, out of all professions, why this? So tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, uh, a little bit of that, and um, what prompted you to become a physician? Let's start there before we get into your book. Yeah, I guess, you know, we all have different stories in this. Mine, I guess, is a multi-part story about why I became a physician i'll tell it retrospectively 50 you know 40 years after the fact uh i have had a grandfather who i never met who was a physician i had a mother who was a social worker um i had a father who died when i was 13 i think there was a combination of those three reasons that sort of pushed me into sort of uh caring about other people uh and and with a some some acumen in science and math um I decided to do medicine, probably most directly related to my father's death and this idea of all children that they should save their parents and why didn't we save our parents and could we save other people? I think that was a sort of the psychological drive for me. I didn't know any physicians. We didn't have in my 
um, lower middle class family, a sort of sense of sense of, you know, that professional class particularly well, but uh, I did uh, have an interest in it. I went to college. I studied economics. I didn't like economics. I went into science. Um, I was always a writer, as you can tell. Um, my primary activity outside of science in college was writing. Uh, I came to a fork in the road. Should I go to medical school or should I become a writer? And um, I made this decision, probably for bourgeois reasons, and um, took that path. And luckily, along the way, became a writer as well. And I've had these two joint careers um, for wow. decades now. And I've been a very lucky and privileged person to do that. Wow. What a what a fantastic reflection there. And thanks for the honesty, by the way. So I can tell folks, um, if you like this honesty, you will really love his books for sure, especially the most recent one. Let me let's kind of start with this question. I was um I was taken back by your title, Accidental Kindness. What led you to write this book? You could have written anything else, an, an, um, a story that's that has nothing to do with kindness or empathy. What led you? What was the impetus for this book? Yeah, I think probably a couple of things. I started to collect some essays over the years that I was writing um, that turned out to have a, a certain theme. And the theme was, I think at the start, was mistakes that Dr. Stein has made. And it bothered me. And that um, I, I happened to be writing about. And then I decided, you know, I didn't have the word kindness particularly in mind at that time I had the word mistake in mind and sort of um, maybe forgiveness in mind and then I began to understand it sort of struck me as I talked about and looked around about sort of the mission of medicine and the mission of hospitals that I was working in that none of them ever used the word kindness I never heard the word kindness in the halls of my hospital or in a conversation with anybody that I talked to um you know, and nor did I hear the sort of words that, you know, that sometimes go along with it, right? Compassion or benevolence mm -hmm. or generosity. And then I would think at a certain point, probably, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, you know, the word empathy has sort of entered the vocabulary of the masses here outside of medicine. Um, and people started to write books with empathy in the title. I thought, oh, what the heck is that empathy thing? Is that kindness? And then I just thought about sort of how I try to deal with patients that I see and, um, you know, what I notice and what I, and, and I also became at a certain age, let me just say, a patient, <laughs> which always sort of strikes you, right? That all of a sudden you're on the other side of the fence here and you have these expectations going into these meetings with these strangers known as doctors who you don't know um, to help you out. And what is that interaction about? And And to me, the interaction was always, at the first level, competence, right? You you need people who you trust and that are competent and knowledgeable. Without that, the kindness, frankly, doesn't matter. I'd rather go to a competent and unkind doctor than a completely incompetent and kind doctor. And I don't think that patients, you know, who are not sophisticated can tell the difference sometimes, right? They 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 interpret kindness as competence. So let's take it that I can interpret competence as best I can better than most people because I'm inside the world as you guys are. Right. And so once I consider competence, then the question is, well, what's going to separate my response to this person? And the answer became kindness. And then I started thinking about it more about myself. And I put together a series of more essays, which were collected into this book called Accidental Kindness. So that's the kindness part. The accidental part, I think, really comes from the fact that 
you know, what I've learned along the way as a provider is that sometimes I say things or do things that people interpret as kind that I never think of sort of in the moment mm -hmm. particularly kind, but they remember as kind. And conversely, there are things that I say or do that people consider unkind. I think sometimes they tell me or walk away. And sometimes I probably never know. Um, and the fact that I don't know <laughs> means that um, you know that there's some accident in these interactions that we have that are very intimate. And so there's the title, Accidental Kindness. Wow, fantastic. Let's I get the interject one set of thoughts here. So I put a course on in 2009 in Swedish in my hospital called um, A Course in Compassion, Empathy in the Face of Chronic Pain. And I realized that no matter what happens, the doctor-patient relationship is number one. When it comes to people in chronic pain and disability, <clears throat> doctors are pretty unkind. We're sort of taught as a culture, if you can't see it on a test, the patients are malingering, and we tend to label them pretty badly. So I, part of that, as part of that course, a paper came out out of Philadelphia using the Jefferson Compassion Index, that pre-medical students had a higher than average level of compassion, and by the third year of medical school, it had dropped through the floor. And our training doesn't really engender kindness. And I agree with Michael. <clears throat> I never heard that word either. And then I'll, I was telling us earlier is that your book <clears throat> triggered a really tough memory for me. And at the time, I thought I was righteous and I was right. But I was at Tripler Army Center and a patient came in with back pain. And I was an orthopedic resident first year. And the guy weighed 450 pounds easily. And I just chewed him out about how can you come see me with the idea you weigh this much weight, you're this out of shape, and you have back pain. You have basically I told them you have no right to complain. And I didn't even I didn't even start feeling bad about that till about five years later. And I can remember the incident just right now. But we're sort of trained to blame the patients to some degree, and I did it in a lot of other different ways. So I guess the word would be accidental unkindness, Michael. Is that a fair statement? Oh, gaslighting, yeah. David. What's that? <laughs> it's called, in my world, in my world, in the world of psychology and therapy, we call it gaslighting, medical gaslighting. And I think I love, I'm going to use this word. Michael really nailed it. It's often accidental. Just like you said, you don't realize what you're doing. And docs are good people like the average person. But I think you're right about that. We some, <clears throat> You guys are trained in a very specific way to think and problem solve. And this is a common thing. So yeah, David, um, I think what you just did there is what many of my patients experience and complain to me on the back end after they see the physician or the specialist that, you know, they said they couldn't find anything wrong or they said, well, just do this exercise or, or just lose weight without and sometimes clear instructions on how to create a new habit. Um, and then they basically dismiss the patient. So it, there are always two players in this, not it's always two sides to a story, right? those sending and receiving and those sending and receiving again. So right. Michael, love to hear your thoughts on David's comment about- yeah, David had a lot of things in his comments. So let me let me take a couple of them because um, I think that there, uh, he said a bunch of interesting things. Uh, one, one is that I would say that, um, you know, our training, and we'll talk more about the training because as you know, the first essay starts with medical school in this book and, and how I think the very, earliest training is um, problematic. But the, the, the overall effect of the training is that we learn to sort of separate um, uh, illness or the illness condition 
from the emotional state of illness, that we're somehow taught that those are separable items. And because the illness or the condition or the syndrome or the problem or the diagnosis, whatever the word is that you choose, is um, is something that is a name, controllable, fixable, um, we, we're able to acknowledge the pathology as it were. And what, what we forget is that every one of those pathologies, which often come in mixed bags, right? It's usually not alone, comes with an emotional state. And that's the harder piece to recognize, to make it clear to the person that we recognize that by recognition allows a certain intimacy and a certain kind of talk. I think that's I think that's a major problem. And then and then to throw in uh, just to speak about David's example of a 450 pound, pound person, you know, 450 pound people are, um, you know, part of an epidemic in America called obesity. They're one end of the spectrum, which is uh, 50% nearly of our population. When 50% of a population is obese, it says to me as a public health person, that it's probably not about personal responsibility and choice that 50% of people would choose that. That seems an unlikely outcome. Right. Which says to me as a public health person, there are pieces of our world that um, push people toward uh, gaining weight, sometimes due to the circumstances of an individual, extreme amounts of weight. But I'm a true believer, again, a sort of anti-medicine notion of that there are forces in the world that affect our behavior, that it's not just about sort of willpower and control. Um, and because of that, doctors should be thinking about the 99.9% .9 of the time that a person spends away from you and the doctor's office that actually affects the person's life. And without an understanding, therefore, I would say of what we've what I've called the emotional state here of the diagnosis, plus the world condition state for that person, which affects the emotional state and the diagnosis, the doctor will never come to an understanding or fix the problem, which is why we as a nation can't deal with obesity, right? We <laughs> deal with it with bariatric surgery on the back end instead of the policies that affect sugar subsidies on the front end, which is why 50% of our population buys cheap food and is overweight. So there's a bunch of things going on, I think, in what David said, but the main one I think has to do with this notion of recognition of the emotional state, which less you know, you know better than we do, and the emotional state in general for people in pain, as David said, or really for any condition when it's chronic, is sadness and loneliness. And I think the notion of sadness and loneliness is freaking hard for anybody to take on, let alone a doctor who can't, you know, order up a prescription for sadness and loneliness. Wow. D David, wow. Um, Michael, if, you, if, if you're in the studio here, um, I'd be giving a big high five and big hug because it was, it was fantastic. I mean, you basically put together without saying the biopsychosocial model in such beautiful sentences. I mean, you really, really described it well. Um, David, what, I wanted your comments on this and um, and then I wanna fire off a, I can't wait to ask the next question about when physicians say, um, I do talk to my patients, what are you talking about? Um, I can't wait to kind of present that question. David, your response to what Michael said. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't like the word biopsychosocial model anymore. I just think it's about human connection and I think connection's a big deal and we label our patients which disconnects. And I also learned through a very harsh experience myself that doctors tend to be disconnected. And I 
had had a label on myself of being a compassionate doctor, and I went through motions of compassion, but I was connected to the label of compassion. I wasn't connected to me or my patients. So it took a horrendous 15-year burnout to actually break through that barrier as I reconnect with myself in a completely changed relationship with my patients. I could talk to people, I could listen. And just for an example of a difference, um, 40% of my entire practice at Cherry Hill was with people with IV drug abuse had, who had infected spines and needed major surgery. And the entire, my entire group did not want to deal with these patients. Our team actually learned to be kind. I, I'll use that word now. I didn't really use it then. And we just talked to these people. <laughs> It was remarkable right in front of you how their personalities were transformed just by being nice. And so these people, nobody wants to be an addict. Nobody wants to be overweight. And I think Michael hit it really on the head that we have a model called dynamic healing where we look at the stresses or circumstances. Then we look at people's coping skills. And then the physiology is the fight or flight or safety. And we feel that chronic disease in general, mental and physical, is from prolonged stress physiology. And the key is going to safety. So... Michael, here's a part that I want to get to, and then hopefully we can actually get into some solutions here. Right now, the business of medicine has taken away our capacity to even talk to our patients, much less get to know them. And you point out very clearly in your book, and we're talking about this today, talking to the patients and being with them is a healing modality. And without that, the rest of it doesn't hardly matter. And we've gone the opposite direction. So what I'd like to get into, because you're a public health person in a really prominent position, Somehow we've underestimated the power of actually talking, listening, being with a patient. And to me, it's below the standard of care to not talk to our patients. But I also understand our need to make a living. We're trapped in a system that forces us to be productive. And so we're in a big problem here. So to me, that capacity to talk to our patients and be with them is a basic healing modality that somehow has gotten minimized. And our medical societies have not stepped up and said, look, we need to talk to our patients. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. What are your thoughts on that, Michael? Well, um, I guess I have lots of thoughts. I mean, I do think that we live in a uh, corporatized medical world, right? Where to a, a generation or two ago, the majority of people were in private practice. And now the ma great majority of people are working for uh, larger businesses or uh, equity funds or for-profit hospitals. And so... I think that there is that pressure. I, I simply don't accept that um, in the sense of that that's a personal choice of these physicians. Physicians can take the time that they need um, to uh, see people. And, you know, I see people all day. I, I'm plugged into a 15-minute schedule on my clinical days. And the answer to that is that some people require two minutes of the 15 minutes, because the problem is simple. It doesn't need to be an existential deep 
conversation and I grab 13 minutes back for the next person. So the second person who has 15 minutes now gets 28 minutes. And I think it's a craftiness and an ability to sort of see through what patients need. That's number one, that sort of gets us a little bit out of the corporate mire here. Secondly, if you need to extend your day so that everybody gets 20 minutes and the corporate corporate is upset, you give everybody 20 minutes. Like I have no tolerance for that. Or you see fewer patients and you make less money. So I just simply have no, I have no sympathy for the doctors who feel like I have to grind everybody through and don't resist these, um, the, the, this corporate mentality. So that's number one. Number two is I think that a certain sensitivity to patients and an understanding that conversations are okay to be emotional and that we and that those emotional conversations sometimes take longer, sometimes they don't take longer, but that if you're willing to have an emotional conversation and continue it over time, that that's okay. Have the person come back next week and continue the conversation. You don't need to see them every three months like you were, quote, expecting to before the conversation started. So you need to handle the emotional conversations and that those conversations sometimes require 45 minutes of recognition and empathy as to bring back that word that allow you to do it in a relatively short time. It doesn't mean you're going to have a two hour conversation with a patient and throw off your entire day. So I would say resist the 15 minute visit and live your life as a human being who wants to interact with other human beings to learn some skills and think about how to, how to handle emotional conversations and in as brief a time as you can, given that your day is only 24 hours wow. long. And number three, maintain your curiosity. I think that's what came back to you, David, later in life. Like you were curious about these people who live these difficult lives. As you said, people don't want to inject drugs. Why are they injecting drugs? Do you want to get into that with them or not? You know, is it your job or not? And I think that that's the question that people have to ask. Is it my job to have that conversation? And in fact, is it my job to be kind as opposed to just competent? And I think that's the conversation that has to happen early in medical training. Well, that is, I, uh, Michael, um, I want to ask you, when are you opening a medical school? Because we have a bunch of recruits we need to get through, even ones who are practicing now, because seriously, I've not heard a physician besides David, my good friend here, as a surgeon, I tease him. I said, what do you, David, you have feelings. You're, you're a surgeon. What happened? Did you get dropped in the OR? Um, in the sense that um, I'm blown away by what you're saying, not because you've written this great book. I think I think you're probably one of the first individuals I've talked to. I have many friends who are specialists, from physiatrists to psychiatrists to ortho folks, but you're one of the first individuals who said it's okay to get curious. And by the way, in my world, in David's world, when someone is struggling with pain, instead of uh, activating the uh, fear responses in the brain, we tell patients to get curious. Curiosity increases emotional learning, which means that people are more likely to do it again. As a, and when people are fearful, they will do that again. It's, it's the same dopamine in the brain, emotional learning. But what you said was just get curious. It's almost like you get back to being, and David, please forgive me this. Uh, Michael understands, so I don't have to do any therapy on him. <laughs> is, that, uh, is this, is it's okay to get back to being human. Yes, you've got a bunch of patients, and I think you just nailed this. Now, without disclosing a whole lot, uh, Michael and David, I train physicians in primary care at a large, large health organization in Northern California, and they got a bunch of us to actually teach physicians compassion, 
to compassion in the sense that it's to do reflective listening, to be able to do that. And the struggle we had was that like they went back to old patterns. And I, I love your word because I think that is really a huge crux. To be able to be kind, you got to get curious first before fearful, I've got, I'm behind schedule, that's fear. And I, I think you just nailed it very beautifully. The kinder you are to yourself and to the patients, you actually enjoy your work and you get back to practicing medicine. Yeah, I mean, and I'll just add one more thing here, which I do think, you know, make will make this sound highfalutin, but I do think it is a sort of uh, an important one. You know, this job has a moral dimension. This job is about respect for people. And it is one of the few places left where people should be able to go where they feel respected. And the that moral dimension should impart on any provider an interest and impartiality and a receptivity to people. And if you can't have that, like, get out. <laughs> you know, that's my, that's my tolerance level for this. So take this seriously. This is serious work. And, you know, what makes it feel hard for people is that it's that on top of an explosion of knowledge and skills and keeping up and competence, which is not trivial. I mean, but that in some ways, these people who've gotten A's in all their courses have trained for all their life, right? Like, so they come to it with that base, base understanding of that's what they're going to have. What they have to learn along the way in growing up is the moral dimension of the work. The other thing that jumps out is that, you know, burnout's 40, 50, 60% in orthopedic surgeries. It's actually is less of a burnout rate, but ER physicians are about 70% burnout rate, et cetera. So I mean, there's a lot of burnout right now. It's interesting physicians go through burnout and when they come out the other side, what actually reconnects them to medicine is the patient. And I think that, um, that, you know, medicine is sort of tedious. <laughs> you do a few things over and over and over again. And what makes medicine infinitely interesting is actually the patient. And so I think one of the essence of burnout right now is that we're moving too fast. We're not connecting with ourselves or our patients. So I think one of the major solutions to burnout is simply talking to your patients and being with them. Um, and one of my one of my friends pointed out, and Mike, you know, we talked earlier, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain-free, so it's less. We use the same principles, you know, a little bit different techniques. And um, watching patients come back to life and thrive is incredibly energizing. So, you know, the data shows only 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain, less than 1% enjoy it, and that's most of their practice. So, of course, they're going to burn out. And it's actually by getting, like you pointed out, that there's an emotional component to all chronic disease. By diving into that world, it's actually, we tend to shy away from it, but it's actually very energizing. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think it's energizing because, you know, kindness is in harmony with our deepest inner state. It's where we are most comfortable being if we can find our way there, you know, but it's hard to find your way there in the midst of feeling rushed, pressured, uh, fear of being wrong, fear of being sued, having coming to the encounter with a bad mood from something that happened at home, 
arrogance, uh, jealousy of other people who have an easier work day, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we have to try to put those things aside, but if, if you can get to this deep inner state, I think, <clears throat> and it's hard to live in that state. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be trivial about this. I think you try to find it where you can. There are going to be patients who you dislike and who have you have good reason to dislike, who are going to threaten you, et cetera. I mean, I'm no um, Pollyanna about this. It's it's This is hard work, but I think that if, if at times patients know you're concerned and that you're a wholehearted presence and that you're humble about what you can and can't do that that's um you know that opens opens life up to you that's uh well said uh, let me david let me um pose this question to michael here um let's just say you're in a training and training all these um physicians around the world and they're all listening in and they say to you listen someone raises their hand and says listen 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 I've been practicing for a while. I do listen to my patients. Um, so I don't, um, I do talk to my patients. They, they tell you that I, I talk to my patients. Um, there's a difference between talking and talking at a patient. Um, and I think that's a huge difference. I was wondering if you can comment on that. Do you get that question? Um, you know, someone maybe reads a book or in maybe in a department meeting and someone's like, yeah, talk to patients. I do talk to them. Uh, they're very dismissive in that sense. Um, you kind of mentioned it a little bit in the beginning and also just a few minutes ago, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts about when you hear a physician uh, who's been practicing well and you, they pick up your book and they go like, good Lord, they want me to talk to the patients. Then one more thing, how do you comment to, I talk to my patients, but you actually in conversation, you hear them talking at the patient. I don't think they know the difference sometimes. I guess I would say this. Um <clears throat> First of all, why, why are you having a conversation like that with a physician? Are they forced to have that conversation with you? <laughs> I mean, and it's an important element of like who your audience is, because, you know, once you leave training, nobody's listening to you or checking on you. I mean, we right. live in a completely autonomous, unmonitored world. Right. Every every physician thinks they're a wonderful physician who talks talks with their patients i mean everybody thinks that nobody thinks that they're at the low end of the satisfaction scale right for their patients i mean who would say that yeah hi i'm dr stein i'm at the bottom five percent of my hospital satisfaction scores i mean nobody thinks that and yet somebody's at the bottom five percent right and so what is that we have no monitoring system there is no sort of um training on this you know pilots need to be trained again and again they have to come back every year and prove that they can do this I don't know what the right training and monitoring system is. All I know is that everybody thinks they're good and there are a lot of people who aren't so good. So, um, you know, they have to come to you and be willing to change at a moment that they're willing to change, you know, or be obliged to change, which might happen after a malpractice suit or some satisfaction survey scores, which into them, et cetera. But, um, you know, I don't think that's an easy conversation and I, and everybody says that they're good. So, so the question is, how would you show them that they're not? And I'm not sure that that's the right way to do it. I mean, you could have follow somebody around for 24 hours with a, a camera and have mm -hmm. them film every interaction and then sit down with them and play it back to them. No one would allow you to do that. But I bet along the way, at least for the first two hours, they would be slowed down and curious and interested. And well, and then they'd probably revert in the second, you know, two hours to what they generally are. But this is a tricky one. This is a tricky one, right? It really is. And um, 
my comment on that is absolutely because it's the habit. Once you have this habit, habits are hard to break. I think we all know that. And the way I uh, I was going to make this comment, and and I think you're you're right. No one really quite stink there at the bottom. Um, the reality is this is I deal with these patients when they come into my office, even though that I'm there to talk to them about and help them with the pain. Um, there's conversations. And one of the things I've learned is to not gaslight anyone. Um, I often tell them to either have a conversation with the physician or write, uh, to look at it from their perspective. So it's not just one perspective, the doctor's perspective, but theirs. That's one. And number two, I noticed that a lot of the physicians I train, uh, in fact, it should be a book. Your, your book should be one of the training requirements, read before we do this compassion training, because I think you really nail it there. Because I think this is a skill. And curiosity, coming back to that, is important. The third thing I want to mention is this is most physicians I've counseled are not open to this until they're at a state of burnout. And then when we show them how to and um, how to get back for the joy of medicine or the curiosity of medicine, something changes because they've been practicing so hard and they forget there's a human behind uh, that lab coat. So that's, that's the moment when they might be willing to change, unfortunately, after they've burned out and probably hurt some people along the way. You know, you, your yeah. profession, psychology, has a different model of this in some cases, yeah. right? which is called supervision, which is that psychologists often continue through their careers in small groups talking yeah. about difficult patients. And by difficult patients, they mean their own difficulties with yes. them. And they talk to each other. And along the way, they get feedback about how they might be interacting or thinking about these human issues. Orthopedic yeah. surgeons, internists, you know, neurosurgeons, uh, ER docs don't don't do that. They don't have these conversations. If they're lucky, they have um, the energy to talk about it at night with their partner and a yeah. partner responsive. But they don't have it in this world. And you know, that's an interesting model because I think the sort of idea of sort of a compassion course. Let's teach these doctors how to be compassionate makes sense to me. I've never been part of one. I've never taught one. I've never wanted to be part of one or teach one because frankly, I'm skeptical of them as a sort of one-off that people do them right. because they're obliged to do them. And what th what we're talking about is habit, as you said, which is dailiness, which means that it has to be part of your regular life, right? Like if you had a course about compassion in the first year of medical school, it would never be as good as following David or Les around every week to their clinic for a year, right? Where you actually saw it happen. The course will lose to the personal interaction over time always. And that's why I've never sort of gotten involved, perhaps, you know, to my detriment in these sort of training opportunities to help, you know, um, doctors become passion passionate or compassionate. I think yeah. the system needs to change the model of sort of ongoingness the, what I would call monitoring or self-monitoring is really what yeah. it works to is what's important. That's how well, I would Well, I did go back to one thing Michael said, which I think is really interesting about the 15-minute schedule. Like right now, this reality is probably not going to change anytime soon. I think you could solve the healthcare crisis in the U.S. really quickly simply by tripling or quadrupling the time spent to talk to patients and slashing prices for procedures that don't work. But that's a different conversation. But I remember one day, just for, as an example, <clears throat> I did exactly what Michael did. I saw patients back frequently. Um, I saw them back every one to two weeks. And so the conversations were within the time frame of the clinic. And that's how I got connected to them. 
And so that's one solution is just, you know, see them back more frequently. You can do that within the time frame. But secondly, I think what happens that, you know, physicians are in a lot of stress. We actually get penalized for seeking help. As you well know, we get sanctioned, all sorts of stuff. So we're in a tremendous amount of stress, no stress management skills. We can't get resources when we need help. And so when you're under stress yourself and trying to survive, it's hard to reach out to your patients. So I made a proposal a while back where I felt like that personal counseling every month in medical school would be critical, maybe once a quarter in, um, in other words, mandating mental health interventions at whatever interval there is. So instead of making it the exception, make it the rule, just how to be proactive in mental health and just be healthier mentally yourself and you can reach out, out to other patients. Because in my case, you know, I get sick for 15 solid years and it was a mess and I didn't have to do that. I've been trained in self-care earlier on. It would have been much easier for me to care for my patients. So right now we're penalized for seeking health. And I think that part of our world should be how to manage our own stresses so we can help patients manage their stresses. I'll say two things. One is, you know, that notion of sort of self-regulation is now entering, of course, you know, preschool education, right? Where, really? where, where part of teaching now is about sort of how kids can recognize when they're unregulated. And um, it's interesting. Okay. It's, you know, it's, it's problematic. The other thing I was going to say was maybe 25 years ago, I wrote a paper that appeared in the medical journal JAMA which got a lot of press at the time, which which I called fee for time, which was a systems approach, which said, let's pay providers for their time right. and, not, and not for their ICD code. Right. And, um, you know, your group might want to read that paper again and talk about that. You know, I was called a communist, et cetera, et cetera, at the time. But really? it, was really, it was really a point that said you know, our incentives are off here and the things that we should be doing are, um, you know, not being valued or the things that we want to value need to be valued financially, which in America is our only notion of value. And so, yeah, an article called Fee for Time in JAMA. I haven't read it. In if you could send me that to me, I would love to actually present it to our Wednesday group. Um, I think that would be, yeah, exactly right. I mean, cannot... I think that is the answer, by the way. Yep. Somehow the surgeons and procedures got a hold of the fee schedule when Medicare came around in the 60s. And, you know, it's been really changed dramatically since then. Of course, you know, Francis Peabody's patients that the essence of care is caring for the patient. But what we now know it, for, through the autonomic nervous system that it actually changes the body's physiology to feel safe with your doctor. It's actually a healing modality. But what's really sad, I think, when you have an unpleasant experience with your physician, that it goes the opposite direction. You make things worse. So, you know, somehow getting into medical school that actually a relationship with your doctor that is safe is actually a healing modality. <clears throat> so, uh, Michael, let's give you a feel for things. <clears throat> I want to jump a little bit more to the solutions in a second. So I can just tell you <clears throat> that um, I was actually have on paper a legally signed document to actually say, quit talking to your patients. Howard Schumer, one of our top people in the country um, on this whole calming people down, he's a genius, just got to let go from his hospital system because he wasn't productive enough. They went and hired two of my pain specialists, that's Dr. Clausen, Les, and um, Joe Conoco. They went and hired him because they weren't productive enough. Another pain clinic had shut down in Seattle. Another, uh, I have multiple friends all around the country 
um, that are being let go and fired because they're not productive enough. Our hospital actually paid for a computer program to measure physician productivity, based on, which is based on procedures, of course. And of course, that's at the very bottom of the list. And I probably donated 1,500 hours to my hospital <clears throat> and never a thank you to try to make things better. And at a retirement party, when I retired, three hospital administrators talked to a patient of mine who they did not know was my patients about how happy they were to see me retired because I was so, quote, unproductive. So, you know, the forces are really strong right now and it's tough. So anyway, I'm going to preface uh, really um, you're in a public health role. I'm just curious from your perspective, what are some doable actions that might be done? I agree with you. Personal responsibility is number one. I, I'm not sure how you say I'm intolerant because I understand the stresses we're under and so do you, that it's hard to reach out when you're stressed without resources. But nonetheless, each one of us has a personal decision to make about how we relate to our patients. So I'm just curious from a public health perspective, what do you think are some doable things that can be done? I'm not sure it's a public health question, except in, in, in its obverse. So let me start with that. Mm -hmm. the, the primary thing we should be talking about less than doctors, you know, fees and times, that, that which should be the second thing, is that we need to get everybody uh, medical care and insurance in this country. Like, yeah. let's start with something that actually needs to be done first, right? Like, they're more important. There's, there's 30 million people who are uninsured, you know, who, uh, you know, trump all of our medical complaints. So let's start with them. So from a public health point of view, um, <clears throat> that's number one. Like, let's insure people and get them access to care so that they're not bankrupted when they seek any care or delay themselves from getting care and get sicker because they're afraid of the bills. So that's number one. Okay, now let's talk, talk let's go to the other side of the fence. So now the doctors, the, the um, unproductive doctors. I'm not, you know, it's a funny thing. I don't know that I have an answer for this. I just remember, you know, as a primary care doctor, you know, I always thought within a multi-specialty system, the primary care doctors are always the ones who are quote unproductive. That is, they have the lowest fee schedule. And wouldn't it be just better to have a whole, a whole medical foundation that's just orthopedic surgeons, like who can make a lot of money with GI specialists? Like, why have primary care doctors? Like, they're so pointless. They're they're just they're just they just make so little money. And in fact, as a system really, what do they do? We should just have PAs and nurse practitioners and no primary care doctors because they can essentially do almost all of the functions and be paid less. So, I mean, if you're just going to get cynical about it, if this is just about sort of generating maximal income, then I say get rid of primary care doctors. Let's stop training them. Let's stop making a charade of that discussion and hire much cheaper nurses who are frankly, probably kinder than doctors in their training along the <laughs> anyway, because the doctors have been made to feel that they're, you know, not making enough money, which is the, yeah. which is the, you know, the, the, the card of the day. So uh, I'm being facetious here as a primary care doctor, but part of me has always felt like it's, we, we, we really don't live in a medical world that values primary care, which is the principal source other than psychiatry of um, conversation. Um, so you know, it's just not something we value as a culture. And until people complain and until systems get sued, that's what you're going to have. So I don't know that there's a way. I mean, I think the physicians 
who are being fired because they're unproductive, you know, that is the sort of price of heroism. I'm sorry to say it that way. I mean, you have to make that choice. You can step up and do that, or you can, yeah. you know, say to your system, I don't need a full salary, pay me two thirds of a salary because I'm only worth two thirds. If that's what you think, okay, but I'm going to practice the way I practice. Mm -hmm. Systems that want that. If you can replace somebody at any point with a cheaper cog, why not get a cheaper, more productive cog for your system? So uh, I don't know that there's an easy answer to this. If the system is inflexible, you know, and you really can't sort of together as a group to change the system since nobody working alone against the system is useful. Um, you know, it's very hard to proceed. So there, there would have to be sort of a systemic activism to change this. I also think that it's, you know, it depends on where you live as in part of the country and what system you work for and what specialty you're in. I think that the particulars matter here. So I guess in summary, I'd say, let's get the patients covered first, and then let's worry about how the doctors care for the patients. And let's yeah. try to value the things that we think that we think are important. And um, you know, how to make that argument against um, a medical system that is for profit only is just tough, right? These are countervailing values. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you very much. Les, do you have any, um, I try to give Les, so, even though he's a psychologist, I try to give him the last word. <laughs> so, do you, so Les, do you, what, do you have the last to listen for us? Yes, um, I actually do. My uh, Thank you, David, for being kind and letting me be part of this podcast. <laughs> but uh, Michael, I've got a question and more of a fun thing. Tell us what you do when you're not out um, writing great books. Um, really, I, I got to tell you this and hats off to you. You are definitely a forward thinking that article. I mean, really, whenever um, someone makes fun of us or when we have new thinking in the way we deal with pain, but your perception on the healthcare system you were ahead of your time and you still are. And um, I think maybe when you're dead and gone, people go like, you know that Michael Stein guy? Yeah, he was right. Um, I think they'll probably come to that um, agreement, but let's get off this topic here and, and wrap up with a fun question here. Tell us when you're not out saving the world and, uh, and being extremely kind to your patients and to yourself, what do you do for fun? And um, do you do any form of self-care? And then we'll wrap up here. Yeah, I mean, I think I do self-care. I don't know that I call it that way, but I'm, I'm pretty much a mess if I'm not physically active. So I do lots of forms of exercise, um, you know, from swimming to walking to yoga to gymnastics to, you know, racket sports. You know, I'm a very active, sporty kind of person. So I love doing that. Um Beautiful. I love cooking. I see wow. friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually love cooking. And here's the better part for a partner. I love doing dishes. I find that. Wow. <laughs> I, I find I find having my hands in warm water, the extreme form of self-care. I love doing dishes. Like put me in the army and put me in KP doing dishes. And I'm like the happiest guy. So I like doing that a lot. Uh, I, I like uh, seeing friends a lot. Um, and I'm and I also spend a lot of time doing political activity because I just think my public health as a citizen is yeah. is um, really I can write books and I can blab with you. But the truth is, you got to change systems. And yeah. so I'm sort of a political activist in certain Beautiful. realms. So I guess that's what I do with my life. But Beautiful. I also have 
I have uh, you know, partner and children and that's great. What what we just heard um, Dr. Stein speak about is what David um, Hanscom says: to live a good life, you have to. Um, to have a good life, you have to live a good life, and you're living it well. Um, and that is truly, and for my world, that's really a well balanced life, um, self care, because that allows you to give more to yourself and others, and the great work that you do. I'm really grateful to you, David. You see how I, I threw in your famous statement <laughs> right uh, and david before we wrap up here could you tell the audience um uh, dr stein's book and um and we'll put it in the uh podcast link could you say that before we close out and uh, you get to have the last word and uh so michael he, right i also make sure we get this out there so the book that we're talking about is called accidental kindness and i'm assuming you can get this on amazon of course and then you've written four books that are nonfiction, correct? The last one was about, what was the title of the last book you just wrote? I think I have seven nonfiction books. Wow. Um, so this is one. There's a new one out about public health this season called Me Versus Us. Okay. My, You can buy every one of my books through Amazon and you can also read about them or hear other me talking about things at my website, michaelsteinbooks.com. Okay. And you can check out that sort of stuff. But yeah, any of my books would be great for people to, to take an interest in. Write to me through the website. I love to be in correspondence with readers. And, um, you know, it's hard to sell books in America. So go buy them. You know, I just found out something from my publisher. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm in awe of you writing so many books because it's really hard to write a book. It's just not that easy. I was just blown away. But they also said that in 2022, that all across the board, all industries, including Amazon, that book sales went to 50%. Everything got cut in half. They don't know why. It was stunning change in book sales. I'm not sure what's going on. Maybe the internet finally won. But anyway, um, Michael, thank you very, very much. I mean, we opened some doors up for maybe future conversations and we would love to help you in your public health efforts, whatever we can do. And we'd love to have you talk to our Wednesday group and just this conversation is really big. Our entire group sort of exists for this whole reason is to bring healing back into medicine. So, Michael, thank you very, very much. Yeah. What a treat to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. David and Les would love to hear from you about today's podcast and any ideas for future topics. You can email them at david Les at dynamichealingpodcast.com. That's david Les at dynamichealingpodcast.com. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.